Welcome to the Close Set Podcast. My name is Themistocles Alexis, and today we return for the second part in our trilogy on an iconic and controversial director, Elia Kazan. Today, in uh, the second installment of our three-parter on Ilya Kazan, we're going to be looking at his work from the early 50s through 1960, primarily on film, but we're going to talk a little bit about uh, his work on the stage as well. And perhaps most importantly, we're going to talk about his controversial testimony before the House of Un-American Activities Committee during the Red Scare. Like we said in part one, Kazan had been a member of the Communist Party in the mid-30s, had some disagreements with the party, was voted out, later became disillusioned with uh, communist ideology after seeing what, what those regimes had done in Europe. And then in the early 50s, was called, was called to testify before the House of Un-American Activities Committee as part of a, uh, a uh, government-backed uh, communist witch hunt. And so we're going to get into all that shortly. Before I do, though, firstly, I encourage you to listen to part one, where we talked about Kazan's early work, we talk about his involvement in the Communist Party, his co-founding the Actors Studio, and a little bit about the method and what that approach to acting was all about. Uh, so there's some good stuff in there, and I encourage you to check it out. Today we get into the good stuff, though. Like I said, the testimony, many great films that he directed throughout the 1950s, including On the Waterfront, East of Eden, A Face in the Crowd. We're going to get to all that. Uh, and also, I would like to remind you before we do that, please, you can find us on the Spotify, the Apple Podcasts, the Google Podcasts, or the Podbean, if you prefer. Uh, so please listen, subscribe, get acquainted with our previous episodes, John Cassavetes, George Roy Hill, Carol Rice, Robert Benton, the great Ida Lupino, Jean-Pierre Melville. Those are the directors we've covered thus far on this show. And I encourage you to listen, subscribe, leave comments if you'd like. Uh, you can find us on the Instagram as well, at Close Set Podcast. That is the handle. So you can follow us there to sort of stay in the loop as to what's going on with the show, what what's coming up, little teasers and such. And uh, you can also reach us by email, at closedsetpod at gmail.com. That is closedsetpod at gmail.com. Questions, comments, feedback, all that good stuff, feel free. You know the drill. You know what to do. And also, like I said in part one, uh, I'm going to be reconfiguring the format of the show. It is looking like, because I, because I still want directors to be the focus of the show, it is looking like every episode will still be dedicated to one director, although the focus of each episode will be on say, a handful of films or however many they are that sort of comprise a pattern. So, for example, it could be Alan J. Pakula's Paranoia Trilogy of the 70s. It could be Lena Vertmuller and um, her films that had a lot of political commentary on uh, on fascism and the Italian political regime and so on and so forth. It could be Mary Herron and her films that covered women who were basically on the fringes of society but who were very impactful in their own ways. So it'll be something like that, you understand. And of course, there'll be a little bit of bio and the broad strokes. Uh, some other films of note will be mentioned, of course, because like I said, if I think something uh, is worth revisiting, worth watching, worth celebrating, ideally I, I, would, I would like to include it. Uh, but the meat of each episode, I think, is going to be whatever films comprise a pattern, a thread of sorts, whether it's a recurring theme or you know, recurring commentary, you understand. So that's where I'm leaning. However, if you have any suggestions or if there are... Uh, 
some changes you would like to see made on this show, if you have any ideas on where you would like me to take it, uh, please feel free. And with that said, let us boogie. Now, a quick clarification. Uh, we ended clarification. We ended part one uh, by talking about A Streetcar Named Desire, a wonderful film based on the Tennessee Williams play. Please listen to part one if you'd like to find out more, if you haven't already. And when uh, I was talking about A Streetcar Named Desire, I mentioned that Vivian Lee's character, Blanche Dubois, after, spoiler alert, she is raped by her brother-in-law Stanley, played by Marlon Brando, uh, I said that she stops living in reality. When the fact is, I just want to clarify, she really wasn't living in reality up until the rape. Of course, it's not a justification for it. The rape is basically what sends her over the edge. She has a total mental break. She's already in a fragile state. She has a hard time being honest with herself. And she has a rare moment of honesty about her ex-husband, his suicide, when she, when she and Carl Malden plays Mitch are courting. So there is this sort of ongoing refusal to look inward and look at herself and hold herself accountable for what she's done or look at what she's done honestly. Presumably because she's running away from her guilt, but in any case, it could be any number of things. I mean, what the fuck do I know, let's be honest. But the point being is that for much of the play, or much of the film in this case, Blanche really isn't living in reality. And so after Stanley, after she gets attacked and raped by Stanley, that's basically the, uh, that's what sends her over the edge. Uh, but I just wanted to get that out of the way. Because it's a wonderful film, it's an important film, and accuracy is important. <laughs> and so in February of 1952, Kazan followed that up with a film called Viva Zapata. And it's about the efforts of a Mexican revolutionary, Emiliano Zapata. Now, in the early 20th century, the Mexican Revolution happened, and it was uh, an effort to overthrow uh, Porfirio Diaz, who had been in power in Mexico for decades, I think, by then. And uh, Emiliano Zapata was a leading figure of the revolution, it follows him as he leads the revolutionary efforts to overthrow Diaz. He comes from a poor background. He's a peasant, essentially. And he wants to marry a woman from a well-off family. Marlon Brando comes back to work with Elia Kazan again. He plays Zapata. The lady he would like to marry is played by Jean Peters. And so she comes from a well-to-do family. So there's this commentary about class and so forth. And the two of them do end up getting married. Meanwhile, Zapata's efforts begin bearing fruit. Diaz flees because he sees the battle is lost, and in comes Francisco Madero to lead Mexico now that Diaz is out. Unfortunately, the army has other plans. The army, basically, that's basically a holdover from the Diaz regime. They basically try to strong-arm Madero and influence him, and eventually they force him out. So Zapata is left to start fighting all over again, and this time beat the army, and hopefully bring some peace to Mexico, bring a new regime, one that will allow the poor to live and prosper and so on. And it's an okay movie, but it raises an interesting question. I don't want to say the revolution is the easy part, but you dedicate so much time and you put so much effort into fighting and resisting and overthrowing what is essentially a tyrannical government, and you pull it off. But then what? And you see it in the film as well. The revolution happens, and even after Madero is forced out, Zapata is Zapata's called upon to lead. And I suppose you get used to resisting for so long that once you get, once you actually get whatever it is you want, it's like they, you don't know what to do with it, and... You see that he believes himself to be a sort of unfit leader, as far as taking office is concerned. Although he is an, an admired and respected leader on, on the battlefield, on the revolutionary front. Where are you going? I'm going home. So you're throwing it away. 
Leave tonight, your enemies will be here tomorrow. And this room at that desk, they won't walk away. They'll hunt you down till you get your rest in the sun with the flies in your face. Leave now, I promise you, you won't live long. You won't live long anyway. Zapata, in the name of all we fought for, don't go. In the name of all we fought for, I'm going. I won't go with you. I don't expect you to. Now I know you. No fields, no home, no wife, no woman. No friends, no love. You only destroyed. That is your love. And I will tell you what you will do now. You will go to Obregon or Carranza. And you will never change. But in any case, it's an okay movie. There is, uh, so the main cast, before I get a, before I get into more of it, Marlon Brando uh, plays Emiliano Zapata, like I said before. He got nominated for an Oscar for this. He's not bad. I mean, Brando's one of the best actors of all time. I'm not going to shit on him, but his performance in this is a, is a little one note, dare I say. Jean Peters, like I said before, she was in the film Pick Up on South Street, directed by Sam Fuller with Richard Widmark. Sam Fuller's a director I like a lot. Uh, she was also married to H Howard Hughes, who was a business mogul and was actually a pretty prominent film producer in his day and uh, a notorious eccentric. The two of them were married for some time, actually. And Jean uh, Peters actually retired from acting in, I believe, the mid to late 50s. Although she came back later on in life to do a bit of television work. But in any case, she plays uh, Zapata's wife in this. Anthony Quinn, great Anthony Quinn, who uh, is probably the only guy in the main cast who is actually of Mexican descent. Uh, he was born during the Mexican Revolution, and I read this in my preparation. Preparation. I do not know if this is true, although reportedly Anthony Quinn's father actually rode with Pancho Villa during the Mexican Revolution. Pancho Villa was another important figure in the revolutionary efforts, and in this film, Alan Reed plays him in a small part. Joseph Wiseman, who was born in Montreal, by the way, where I'm from, grew up in New York, he plays another member of the Resistance. Joseph Wiseman, for those of you who love the the James Bond series, he uh, he plays Doctor No in what is basically the first proper James Bond film in 1962 with Sean Connery. He was also in uh, Bye Bye Braverman, a wonderful actor, and he's very good in this as well. Mildred Dunnick shows up. She was in that great production of Death of a Salesman on Broadway, so she and Kazan had worked together before. Uh, she shows up in a small part in this, and I believe that about does it for the main cast. And it, it's not bad. It's It suffers from, from the flaws that a lot of historical dramas of that time in Hollywood do. So they shot it. They shot a lot of it in Texas. They tried to make the costumes and the, and the countryside look as, as authentic as possible. So it's, they didn't half-ass this by any means. However, I suppose when, you, when you're making a movie that takes place in a, in a, on foreign land, but you're, casting, but you're casting American actors, I suppose instead of having them all do, taking a chance on them and asking, to all, asking them all to do Mexican accents, most of the cast was actually just allowed to to speak fairly normally, and so it's funny. So you have so you see like some people in smaller parts who are still speaking with like their native New York accents, which is pretty funny. But I suppose I suppose you're in a, in between a rock and a hard place in that situation because for me personally, when I hear an accent that I know is badly done on screen, it takes me out of the film entirely. There are a few things that annoy me more than a shitty accent when I watch movies. So I suppose it's the lesser of two evil to just leave the cast sort of speak in their normal voice or maybe put like, maybe alter their inflections or some such. Uh, but in any case, so that's what happens in this film. Although there is a great scene, one that I like especially. So Zapata, of course, being a revolutionary, is wanted by the Federales. And so there's a scene in the film where he gets captured and the Federales tie him up and they're basically marching him to his death. And as they're, wa as they're marching him toward his death and that little sort of, I don't know, Call it a convoy, for lack of a better word. As the convoy is moving, is moving down the road and through the countryside, 
The peasants are seeing him being led to his execution. And little by little, they come out of the hills, out of the fields, and they gather around this convoy and they begin moving with it. And the group gathers and gathers and it grows and it grows. And as it does, the music gradually builds and it's this wonderful symphony. There's strings and horns and there's percussions. And you know they're gathering to intervene and actually free him from his captors. And it's a wonderful, wonderful build-up to it. yourselves liable for his crime. What are you trying to do? We are here, my captain, with your permission, to see that the prisoner does not try to escape. For if he did try, you would be forced to shoot him in the back. Is that not so, captain? You're breaking the law. No, helping the law with your permission, guarding the prisoner. Anthony Quinn won an Oscar for this, by the way. He won Best Supporting Actor, the first of two he would win. And Anthony Quinn's really great in this. Anthony Quinn, uh, we mentioned, was uh, the only guy in the main cast who was actually of Mexican background. He was in a lot of great films. He was in Lust for Life with Kirk Douglas, won another Oscar for that in 1956, I believe it was. He was in Across 110th Street, which is one of my personal favorites. He was in La Strada, the Federico Fellini movie with Giulietta Massina. Great actor who, was, who did a ton of great work, and he uh, won an Oscar for this as uh, Emiliano Zapata's brother, Eufemio, who is basically his right-hand man in the revolutionary efforts. And Brino himself was nominated for an Oscar. This was in 1952, which means Gary Cooper ended up winning for High Noon. And another thing worth noting is that the script for this was written by John Steinbeck. John Steinbeck, you may know as the author of The Grapes of Wrath, of Mice and Men, and he and Kazan worked on this together. Well, it started with a, a newspaper item. I, I read that his best friend had been run over by a locomotive and also that his wife had divorced him. And uh, that kind of pain is, makes a man very open to artistic stimulus. So I got on a train and went out. To see, I wrote him a letter and then I went out on the train. He said, come on out. And I got to know him. I stayed with him. I lived with him for a while. And he was very, he was very much in search of something to do that would make him feel feel better, feel worthwhile. So I said, did, did you ever hear of Zapata? He says, I've been thinking of years, for years, about writing a book about him. So I said, why don't we make a film instead? We practically wrote it together in the sense that I typed it and I suggested structure and ideas and he gave the lines and some of the best scenes were completely his. Steinbeck got nominated for an Oscar for his script and Alex North, who did the music for uh, Streetcar Named Desire, that lovely score. He did the music for this as well, and it's uh, and it's great. But that's about all I got on Viva Zapata. Now, that film came out in 1952. That same year in the spring was when Kazan was called to testify before the House of Un-American Activities Committee. This is where we get to the controversy. Now, a little bit of historical context first. In the early 50s, it's after World War II. So America's in the throes of the Cold War with the Soviet Union. It's the height of the Red Scare. There's a lot of fear-mongering and sort of suspicion basically pushed by the American government and the establishment that communist spies and communist infiltrators are sort of making their way, creeping their way into our institutions and our industries, show business included. 
and they're a threat that must be stopped, right? They're a threat to America. That, this was the narrative that was being pushed. And one of the faces behind that fear-mongering was Senator Joseph McCarthy, who's a senator from Wisconsin. So what happened was the House of Un-American Activities Committee was formed. It was an initiative led by the, uh, the U.S. House of Representatives. The Senate actually had nothing to do with it, and McCarthy himself, even though he's considered the poster child for this witch hunt, he wasn't directly involved in the HUAC himself. So in any case, the HUAC is established, and they begin cracking down on show business. Writers, actors, directors are all called to testify and name names, whether they were communist sympathizers, whether they knew anybody or worked with anybody who were communists, and those who didn't play ball uh, were blacklisted. They couldn't work. And like I said, that went for screenwriters, that went for actors. Many of them went for years without working. Some of them went a decade without working on screen, including Zero Mostel, the great actress Lee Grant. She talks about that in uh, Gilbert Gottfried's Amer uh, Amazing Colossal podcast, if you want to take a listen. And so the witch hunt began in the late 40s, and it lasted through the 1950s. And so in the spring of 1952, Kazan himself was called to testify. Now, from what I understand, he had been called in for a first hearing which may have taken place behind closed doors, and I don't believe he named names then, but the second time he was called in, he ultimately gave the HUAC the names of eight people from his days in the group theater in the 30s. Now keep in mind, Kazan was a member of the Communist Party in the mid-30s, he was active in the group theater in the mid-30s, so by the time he was called before the HUAC to testify, 15 years had passed. Now 15 years is a long time for you to grow older and wiser and learn some things and maybe change your opinions, change your stance, because that's what happens. You learn more. And generally as well, people tend to be more conservative as they grow older. I'm not leaning any which way politically, but I'm just saying 15 years is a long time for you to reconsider some of your positions. And so by the time Kazan testified, some of the people he ratted out, maybe they weren't even remotely involved in, in, the, in the communist movement by then. What, are you going to hold people accountable for, for a stance they held 15 years prior? That's pretty fucking ridiculous, you ask me. But in any case, Kazan gave eight names... Uh, one of which was Clifford Odets, the great playwright, and the two of them had worked together in the group theater. Kazan was actually in a couple of his plays, including Waiting for Lefty, which we mentioned in part one. He also named Morris Karnofsky, who was an actor who was involved in the group theater. And they were two of the eight names he mentioned. And after his testimony, shortly after, in the immediate aftermath, Kazan took out a piece in the New York Times basically saying that he, that he thought he had done the right thing and that he stood by his decision to testify. He felt he was morally in the right. And that only made matters worse. It basically made him a pariah. He went back to the actor's studio. He was persona non grata with a lot of people who worked with him there. And he helped co-found the actor's studio as well. Friends of his had cut him off in response to his testimony. He became a very, very polarizing figure in show business. And another thing that Kazan had claimed was that he didn't give the HUAC any names that weren't already on their radar. So he claimed the HUAC was already aware of the eight people that he had named. Although that's since been disputed, apparently... At least a few of them were not already on the HUAC's radar. And another thing that was interesting as well is that Kazan at this time was basically the most in-demand director both on Broadway and in Hollywood. And so the prevailing belief uh, among his peers, his colleagues, and so on was that if anybody could have handled or could have survived being blacklisted, it was Kazan because he was so in-demand. Even if he couldn't work in movies anymore... If he had just dummied up and gotten blacklisted from working in films, he could have just gone back to the theater and kept working there because he was such a prominent director by then and was very much in demand that they figured he could he could actually survive a blacklisting better than most. But anyway, that was the prevailing belief at the time among his uh, his peers. And 
the thing that, that kind of baffles me about all this is that Kazan had actually worked with several actors who had been blacklisted themselves. He had worked with John Garfield. He had been blacklisted. He directed him in, in Gentleman's Agreement. Anna Revere as well. She was also in Gentleman's Agreement. Anna Revere was a vocal opponent of the HOAC in this whole communist witch hunt. And she had been blacklisted herself in the 50s. And she appeared in Red Channels, which was basically the publication that listed a bunch of names of people who were suspected of being commies and sim communist sympathizers and un-American and so on and so forth. And... Kazan had worked with Zero Mostel, who was basically... Kazan had sort of patted himself on the back for pulling Zero Mostel out of the blacklist and giving him a part in the film Panic in the Streets. And later, from the early 50s through the mid-60s, a period that lasted, I think, 14 or 15 years, Zero Mostel got zero screen work. And I believe, don't quote me on this, but he basically had to work as a... He sold his paintings. He was, he was a painter, and that's how he supported himself through the blacklist. Uh, because he couldn't get screen work. So it's not like Kazan didn't know what da what damage a blacklisting could do to an actor's career. I mean, these guys couldn't work. They couldn't make a living working their craft, playing their trade. But in any case, I mean, and as we said in part one, Kazan had said himself after he, he left the Communist Party that he had, he had a lot of disdain for the communist regimes in Europe and how people were treated there. He was not happy when the USSR signed the pact with the Nazis uh, shortly before World War II. And he's insisted in uh, several interviews later in life as well that, uh, that he thought he did the right thing. In the second place, there have been a lot of falsehoods said about me. I was not pressured into uh, testifying as I did. Nobody pressured me. Nobody from the government pressured me. It was entirely my own doing. It was my own conviction. Still is. And the other thing was that I didn't gain a new contract. That was all said. That's a lie. Out and lie. Zanuck called me in his office right afterwards and cut my salary. So it wasn't anything like that. It was just I, I thought about it carefully. I tell you, if I had it to do over again, I would think more carefully perhaps and do the opposite. And then I'd think a little more and do the same thing. That's how I feel about it. So I, I don't feel any different. And everything that's happened in the Soviet Union and every revelation of Solzhenitsyn and, and uh, above all, Khrushchev's book had a big effect on me. And everything that's happened since confirms me and my feeling about it. But some people were hurt. I think some people were hurt. But I think in events of that size and that moment, people do get hurt. It was, and uh, nobody said it was a child's game that we were in. Uh, I was also not just a uh, Rolls-Royce communist or a Cadillac communist or a, a radical chic communist. I spoke on street corners. I actually did. And so he wasn't blacklisted. He was able to keep working. And I guess he basically just decided to plow ahead and throw himself into his work because the 50s were a very, very busy decade for him. And so in 1953... Kazan went back to work and directed his next film called Man on a Tightrope. Now, it stars Frederick March as a circus man. He runs a circus in communist Czechoslovakia. And he's getting pressured by communist agents, communist officials, who want him to fire certain members of his circus because of where they come from. They want him to change his routines. And they basically want to meddle in his business. And essentially, the state owns his circus. Although the circus was, was his baby, he founded it, he runs it. He is basically told by the state that the people don't own anything. Everything belongs to the state, and they're basically meddling in his, in his business. They're, they're tightening the screws. They're putting the squeeze on him. And so Frederick March hatches a plan to smuggle himself, his family, his circus troupe, to smuggle them across the border and into Bavaria where they can be free. And I don't want to talk too much about this. It's one of Kazan's lesser-known films, and it's okay. It's not a bad film. Main cast quickly. Frederick March, who was a two-time Oscar winner and a wonderful actor, and he's great in this. He and Kazan had actually worked together on stage. Uh, one of the first plays Kazan directed, called The Skin of Our Teeth, the Thornton Wilder play, starred Frederick March and Tallulah Bankhead. So Frederick March had worked with Kazan before. He plays the circus man who was trying to get everyone to safety and across the border. 
uh, Gloria Graham, who was in a million and one things, Odds Against Tomorrow, Crossfire, won an Oscar for The Bad and the Beautiful, Sudden Fear. She plays Frederick March's wife, who is uh, being unfaithful to him. She doesn't have much respect for him. And the members of the circus troupe don't have much respect for her either because she isn't a performer and she doesn't really contribute much to their act. Terry Moore plays Frederick March's daughter. Terry Moore had been in the film adaptation of Come Back Little Sheba with the great Shirley Booth and Burt Lancaster. Uh, Richard Boone shows up in this as well. He plays another member of Frederick March's troupe who uh, turns out to be a traitor and has been ratting him out to the communist authorities. And Adolphe Manjou shows up in this. He was a great actor and did a lot of work in the early 30s, especially he was in Morocco with Marlena Dietrich. He was in a film called The Front Page, for which he was nominated for an Oscar. And later, after Man on a Tightrope, a couple years after, he was in the wonderful Stanley Kubrick war film, Paths of Glory. He plays a communist agent who suspects that Frederick March is plotting an escape across the border. And it's not a bad film. Like I said, it isn't great. But uh, the interesting thing about it for me is, for one thing, it's Kazan sort of doubling down on his disdain for communist Europe and depicting sort of what that regime is all about. And most importantly, there's a parallel between the communist regime in the film sort of meddling in the circus's business to Kazan's real life. And actually, there's a direct parallel there to his time in the group theater in the mid-30s uh, when he was also a member of the Communist Party. The source of his discord with the Communist Party in the mid-30s was the fact that they actually wanted to meddle in the business of the group theater. They wanted to have a say in the work that they were doing, and they wanted it to sort of toe the party line. And Kazan was not pleased with that, and so I, so I suppose what happens in the film between Frederick March and the Communist officials sort of parallels his, exp his own experience from the mid-30s. You have your permit, fuel? Yes, sir. You'll hand it over to the sergeant. Will it be given back to me? And without that permit, the circus can't continue to move. That will depend. Mr. Chief Inspector, I am not a political man. You will do well to become one. I've been with the circus in this country since I was born. I was here when we were ruled by an emperor in Vienna. I was a performer of the Masaryk and Benish Republics and even under the Nazi tyranny. My circus isn't much anymore, and heaven knows there are better clowns than I. All I ask is to be allowed to continue as a performer. You have shown disobedience which approaches treason. I've never been a traitor. In the past month, I've given seven shows free for the soldiers of our army. You were ordered to give those shows, were you not? Yes, sir, but I was glad to do it. I must warn you, Colonel Chen, that you will obey the instructions that have been given you. You will obey them within 48 hours, or you'll be transferred to a field of activity where you can do more constructive work and less damage. But my circus! Your circus! You've already forgotten it's no longer your circus. It's the property of the state! You'll be subject to liquidation, and his property is turned over to your competitor, Vladislav Barovic who's been far more intelligent in his ability to accommodate himself and his circus to the party line. But that's all I got on Men on a Tightrope. And so moving on, we get to what is certainly Kazan's most celebrated film, and perhaps his best, On the Waterfront, 1954. And so On the Waterfront follows a former boxer, played by Marlon Brando, who's now working as a longshoreman. And he has dealings with corrupt union officials, who basically run the docks. And they have a stronghold on it and they're crooks. And the union boss, played by Lee J. Cobb, one night asks Marlon Brando basically to lure a longshoreman who was an informant to his death. Of course, Marlon Brando is made to believe that they're just going to rough him up a little bit, they're just going to give him a, you know, a stern talking to. But of course, the informer is murdered, and of course he feels tremendous guilt over it. I know what's eating you. Well, I got 2,000 dues-paying members in this local. That's 72,000 a year legitimate. 
And when each one of them puts in a couple of bucks a day just to make sure the work's steady, well, figure it out. And not just for openers. We got the fattest piers and the fattest harbor in the world. Everything moves in and out, we take our cut. Why shouldn't we? If we can get it, we're entitled to it. You don't suppose I can afford to be boxed out of a deal like this, do you? Deal I sweated and bled for, and I got one lousy little cheesy to that dog bum who thinks he can go squealing to the crime commission, do you? Well, do you? Meanwhile, some agents from the Waterfront Crime Commission are trying to get him to testify against the union and against his bosses. And a local priest, who's played by Carl Malden, is trying to get the longshoremen to band together and fight back against these corrupt union officials. Because they're beholden to them, they're at their mercy. They have to chip in a few bucks to make sure that they get steady jobs working on the docks. They have to take out loans with the union officials, and if they don't take out loans and at an interest rate, of course, they don't work. If they're asked to do a favor for the union bosses, they better do it or else. And probably worst of all, informants are looked upon very kindly, and not just that, when informants are uh, basically disposed of or murdered in this case, the uh, longshoremen basically have a policy to dummy up. And so you have Terry Malloy, Marlon Brando's character, who's feeling tremendous guilt and is being pressured to testify to the Waterfront Crime Commission. You have <clears throat> Carl Malden's priest, who is trying to get the longshoremen to band together and fight back against this corruption and start getting a fair shake at work. And you have the sister of the victim, the sister of the informer, played by the wonderful Ava Marie Saint, who strikes up a romance with Marlon Brando's character. And Marlon Brando's brother, Terry Malloy's brother, Charlie, played by Rod Steiger, is the right-hand man of the union boss, Johnny Friendly, which only complicates things further. Here, kid, here's half a bill. Go get your load on. No, I'm okay, Go Charlie. Thank you. Present from your Uncle Johnny. And Mac, tomorrow morning when you shape the men, put Terry up in the loft, number one, sure, why every not? day. It's nice, easy work, see? You check in and you goof off on the coffee bag, okay? Okay. Hey! You got a real friend here. And don't forget it. Why should you forget it? Yeah. Thanks, Johnny. This film, the script for this film, was written by a guy named Bud Schulberg. We're going to talk more about him in a little bit. And the main cast is Marlon Brando, like I said before in what might be his best performance ever. Like I said, Marlon Brando is heralded as one of the best actors ever. He was part of a new generation of actors that came out of the actor's studio. And he brings a wonderful mix of just masculinity and sensitivity. And he's not afraid to be vulnerable. And Carl Malden plays the local priest, who is actually based on a priest that Bud Schulberg knew. Lee J. Cobb, like I said, plays the corrupt union boss Johnny Friendly. Ava Marie Saint, this was actually her film debut. She had worked at the actor's studio herself. And so Brando, Malden, Lee J. Cobb had all worked with Kazan before. And Ava Marie Saint, of course, knew him from her work in the actor's studio. So even though this was her first film, I imagine she felt pretty comfortable on, on set working with all these people. Although she had, done, she had done a lot of work in the theater. She had done some work in TV, of course. Uh, and I believe she's the only member of the cast who is still alive. She's 97 years old. Uh, in any case... She plays the, the sister of the informer that Marlon Brando sends to his death. And a romance forms between the two of them, and she is, she is wonderful in this. Uh, Rod Steiger, like I said, plays the brother to Marlon Brando's character, Charlie. Pat Henning, great character actor, plays uh, one of the longshoremen on the docks that Carl uh, Malden's character convinces to, uh, to testify and to turn on the corrupt union bosses. John F. Hamilton 
He plays another old longshoreman who's the father of Marie Saint's character. A bunch of other great character actors show up in this as well. Uh, Fred Gwynn, the character he plays is named Mladen, Mladen Sekulovic, which is actually Carl Malden's real name. But Fred Gwynn was in uh, The Munsters early in his career, and he had a resurgence later in life in the early 90s. He plays the judge in My Cousin Vinny, and he was in Pet Cemetery as well. Of course, unfortunately, he died... Uh, shortly after. But in any case, he plays one of uh, the flunkies, one of the lackeys to Lee Jacob's character. Uh, Martin Balsam, another wonderful character actor who was in Twelve Angry Men, A Thousand Clowns, The Taking of Pelham 123. He plays an agent from the Waterfront Crime Commission who is trying to get Marlon Brando to testify. And also, Tony Galento, who is a boxer, he shows up as one of uh, Johnny Friendly's thugs. So it's an incredible cast, and all the performances are wonderful. And what I think the film is about is, for one, it's one of many things. For one thing, of course, naturally, it exposes a lot of the union corruption and a lot of the fuckery that was happening on the docks this time. But besides that, I think, for one thing, it's certainly about wasted potential. And that goes for both the Malloy brothers, Terry and Charlie. You have Terry Malloy, who's played by Brando, who's a former prize fighter, and he and Rod Steiger have that great scene in the cab together, where he sort of blames Steiger for his boxing career stagnating. Brando talks about how he had a big fight lined up and how he could have beaten his opponent easily and it would have taken him to the top. But Steiger and his Steiger and his bosses got Brando to throw the fight. And that essentially proved to be the end of his boxing career. And so he, he resents his brother for that. And even when you look at Charlie Malloy, his brother, he is basically the only guy in their circle who is college educated, although I don't believe he graduated. He could be doing a million and one other things for his life. And here he is as a right-hand man to a murderous and corrupt union boss. And of course, it's about personal failure as well. And you weighed 168 pounds. You were beautiful. You could have been another Billy Khan. And that skunk we got you for the manager. He brought you along too fast. It wasn't him, Charlie. It was you. Remember that night in the garden? You came down my dressing room and said, Kid, this ain't your night. We're going for the price on Wilson. You remember that? This ain't your night. My night, I could have taken Wilson apart. So what happens? He gets the title shot outdoors in a ballpark, and what do I get? A one-way ticket to Palookaville. You was my brother, Charlie. You should have looked out for me a little bit. You should have taken care of me just a little bit so I wouldn't have to take them dives for the short-end money. Well, I had some bets down for you. You saw some money. You don't understand. I could have had class. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. Instead of a bum, which is what I am. Let's face it. It was you, Charlie. You know, it exposes what a lot of working class people were going through at this time. And another thing I suppose is it, it, I guess it basically exposes how you trap yourself when all you care about is self-preservation. Because the dock workers are put into a corner. If they don't play ball with the union bosses, they can't work and they can't fight back because they know it'll lead to their death. And so most of them are left with little choice but to just sort of try to soldier on and get by as best they can. Yeah, it's just about how self-preservation doesn't really get you anywhere. Not when you're at the mercy of corrupt bosses at least uh, but in any case there are so many wonderful scenes in there and there's this there's that iconic scene in the cab between Steiger and Brando that I mentioned before and I don't know maybe if you watch it today it might not hold up for younger viewers or the impact of it may be lost on younger viewers I don't know I can't say for sure but I think what made that scene so iconic is because it resonated with so many people 
An interesting story about it, there's the two shot of the two brothers in the cab, Rod Steiger and Marlon Brando. So there's the two shot where both of them are in the frame, and then it cuts back and forth. There are close-ups with Brando, there are close-ups with Steiger. And generally, the, the professional thing to do is when two people are in a scene together, and you know the camera is has a close-up on one of them, naturally, the scene partner is supposed to stick around and, you know, work with them through the scene, even though they're off-camera. Well, apparently what Brando did when it was time for Rod Steiger's close-ups, he basically fucked off. <laughs> and he left Steiger hanging, and I think it was uh, one of the crew members or a stage manager, I think, or an assistant director who basically had to sit in the cab with Steiger and sort of help him through the rest of the scene. Which is, a, which is a douche move, I gotta be honest. Marlon Brando wasn't always the easiest actor to work with, by the way. I didn't mention that before. Uh, and he pulled this stunt on Steiger, and he, Steiger resented him for it for a very, very long time. But it's a wonderful scene between the two of them, probably the best-known scene of the movie. And another great one is when Brando and Ava Marie Saint have fled the church, and the two of them are walking through the park, and they're talking, and Ava Marie Saint drops her glove at some point, and Brando just picks it up, and they keep walking, and they keep talking. He's playing with the glove. He's toying with a little bit. He just puts it on. And the scene just keeps carrying on. It keeps progressing. And there's a, long, a wonderful long one-shot of them just walking through the park. He sits on the swing, puts the glove on. They're shooting the breeze. And it really doesn't look like much, but it is wonderful. And it's it, and it's just a testament to, to how good these two actors are. Because every saint, her dropping the glove wasn't in the script. It was an accident. And whereas on a lot of sets, a director would just yell, would just yell cut, and have them start over because, of course, it wasn't in the script. Brando just picked up on it, and he reacted. He picked it up. They carried on with their scene, and it adds another. It adds another layer of reality, and it, all it is is just two actors being present, and it's wonderful. You don't. You don't remember me, do you? Remember you the first moment I saw you. Right a nose, huh? <laughs> well, some people. Just got faces that stick in your mind. Remember, you were in trouble all the time. Now nah, you got me. Boy, the way those sisters used to whack me, I don't know what. They thought they was going to beat an education into me, but I foxed them. Maybe they just didn't know how to handle you. How would you have done it? With a little more. Patience and kindness. That's what makes people mean and difficult. People don't care enough about them. Ah, oh, what are you kidding me? No. Come on, I better get you home. There's too many guys around here with only one thing in their mind. Am I going to see you again? And the performances are all great, of course. Interestingly, this film was actually a little while in the making. So in 1951, Kazan was actually going to make a film with Arthur Miller about the docks called The Hook. The Hook is what Longshoremen used to sort of grab and move crates around, right? And so the two of them were going to work on this together. Arthur Miller, like I, we mentioned in part one, uh, was an iconic playwright, wrote uh, Death of a Salesman, A View from the Bridge, All My Sons, and Kazan had directed productions of All My Sons and Death of a Salesman on Broadway, and the two of them were friends. So they were going to make this film together, and they had taken it to a studio in California, and the studio, keep in mind again, 1951, Red Scare, Cold War, the studio wanted the corrupt longshoremen uh, union officials to be made into communists or some such. And Arthur Miller said no. And after Kazan had testified against to the House of American Activities Committee, it damaged his friendship with Miller, and their relationship was never the same. And so that project fell through for both those reasons. And what happened was Kazan later met Bud Schulberg. Bud Schulberg actually came from a showbiz family, 
And he had testified before the House of Un-American Activities, before Kazan. And I believe he had been writing in Pennsylvania when the two of them got together. And it was Schulberg who ended up writing the script for On the Waterfront. And so Kazan takes another go at the project, this time with a different writer. And they tried shopping it around to the studios and nobody wanted to touch it. Nobody would do it. And while they were out in California, they had a chance encounter with a producer named Sam Spiegel. And Sam Spiegel needed a project to work on because he was having financial trouble. And so they had a chance encounter with him. Spiegel agreed to produce it. And that's how On the Waterfront was born. And so the film was shot in Hoboken, New Jersey, which is just across the Hudson River from New York City. And Hoboken, New Jersey is where Frank Sinatra is from. The reason I mention that is because before Marlon Brando was cast, it turns out Marlon Brando needed some convincing to take this part. Even though Kazan wanted him, I believe uh, Brando's agent and a couple other people actually had to work to convince him to take the part. In the meantime, Frank Sinatra was campaigning very hard to take this part. He was from Hoboken, New Jersey himself. And of course, Brando ended up getting cast eventually. They convinced him to take the part. Frank Sinatra lost out, and uh, from what I understand, he wasn't too pleased about it. And it's interesting looking at this film, because even today, years after Kazan's death, a lot of people look at this film, whether it's artists, film theorists, scholars, critics, whatever. A lot of them look at this film as... Kazan trying to rationalize or justify his testifying before the House of Un-American Activities Committee. Because like we said, Brando's character Terry Malloy is getting pressured to testify to the Waterfront Crime Commission. They're putting the squeeze on him and a lot of the dock workers. One of the longshoremen who is convinced by Carl Malden's priest to testify ultimately ends up murdered. They try putting the squeeze on Brando. They end up taking it out on his brother. And ultimately, spoiler alert, I mean, the movie's almost 70 years old, so you know. Marlon Brando ultimately agrees to testify and stand up to the union bosses. And in the immediate aftermath of his testimony, he becomes a pariah. The longshoremen are giving him the cold shoulder. And he's not getting any jobs when he goes back to the docks. But he has nowhere else to go. So he shows up looking for work. They all turn their backs on him. And it leads to a big confrontation between himself and his corrupt union boss, Johnny Friendly. And it's him standing up to the union boss that actually leads the longshoremen themselves to do the same and band together and march on to work and leave the corrupt union bosses behind. They free themselves of him finally. Hey, Friendly! John Friendly, come out of there! Friendly! Come on out of there! You want another trouble with you? You think it makes you a big man if you give the answers? Well, at the right time, I'll catch up with you. Be thinking about that. Now go on, beat it. Don't push your luck. Wait a minute, you. You take them heaters away from you and you're nothing. You know that? You talk yourself in the river. You take the good goods away and the kickbacks and a shakedown cabbage and a pistol arrows and you're nothing. Your guts is all in your wallet and your trigger finger. You know that? You ratted on us, Terry. From where you stand, maybe, but I'm standing over here now. I was ratting on myself all them years. I didn't even know it. Come on! You give it to Joey, you give it to Dogan, you give it to Charlie, it was one of your own. You think you're God Almighty, but you know what you are? Come on! You're a cheap, lousy, dirty, stinking mug. And I'm glad what I've done to you. You hear that? I'm glad what I've done. And I'm gonna keep on doing it till I get Come on! Come on! And so it's easy to think when you look at that story, it's easy to think that Kazan is trying to rationalize or even glorify his testimony before the House of Un-American Activities Committee. However, I disagree with that assessment because the story holds up on its own. You look at it today, decades and decades removed from Kazan's testimony, you look at what happens to Marlon Brando's character and the course of action he has to take, there is really no other way for that character to go. The story can't go any other way. And after everything these guys do to his colleagues, his brother, his friends, 
there really is no other way Brando's character could have gone. And honestly, I find it very difficult to watch that movie and not leave thinking that Brando's character did the right thing. I mean, they killed his brother for fuck's sake. What would you have done? And again, this is not a defense of Kazan's testimony. I strongly disagree with his testimony because he put some people out of work for beliefs they held 15, 16 years prior, which I personally I think is ridiculous. And especially because he knew the what effects the blacklist had taken on some of his colleagues and people he had worked with. I can only imagine he knew. How could he not have? So I'm not defending his testimony, although I do disagree that on the waterfront is basically an allegory or a justification for all of that. Uh, but in any case, it is one of the greatest films ever made, and despite to those criticisms, the film was a smash success and it got nominated for a ton of Oscars. It won Best Picture, Brando won Best Actor, first of two Best Actor Oscars he'd win. Kazan won Best Director, his second Oscar. Uh, Eva Marie Saint in her film debut wins Best Supporting Actress, and she was later in a bunch of other great films. She was in A Hatful of Rain which is based on the Michael V. Gatso play. She was in North by Northwest, the Hitchcock film with Cary Grant. So she won Best Supporting Actress for this. Bud Schulberg won an Oscar for his script, and Boris Kaufman won an Oscar for his cinematography, and rightfully so. It's, it's a beautifully shot film. And Carl Malden, Lee J. Cobb, and Rod Steiger all ended up getting nominated for Best Supporting Actor, and all three of them lost. <laughs> Edmund O'Brien, who we talked about a little bit in our Ida Lupino episode, he ended up winning for a film called The Barefoot Contessa. Uh, that said, the three of them are fantastic in this. It's, they're wonderful performances all around. Carl Malden, like I said, had worked with Kazan before. He was in A Streetcar Named Desire, won his Oscar then, and he was based on this sort of streetwise priest that Schulberg knew. Uh, he was perfect for the part. Like I said... Regular, blue-collar guy. Nothing sanctimonious about him, even though he's a man of the cloth. And he's a man with genuinely good intentions. Now, what does Christ think of the easy money boys who do none of the work and take all of the gravy? And how does he feel about the fellas who wear $150 suits and diamond rings on you union dues and your kickback money? And how does he, who spoke up without fear against every evil, feel about your silence? Tell him about that! And Lee J. Cobb is great as the corrupt union boss Johnny Friendly. He had been in that great production of Death of a Salesman. He had also been in the Kazan uh, film Boomerang in 1947. And Rod Steiger, later in his career, he became known as a bit of a ham or some guy who loved chewing the scenery. And he put on a lot of cartoonish performances later in his career and a lot of awful accents. That said, Rod Steiger, early in his career, put on a lot of wonderful performances. This film included He is Great as Brando's Brother. And he had a lot of other great showings. He was in, <clears throat> he was great in the Sidney Lumet film, The Pawnbroker, in 1964, which I highly recommend. He was in In the Heat of the Night with Sidney Poitier, The Mark, which is a strange film that I have mixed feelings about, but he is excellent in it. Uh, and he's great in this as well. And also Leonard Bernstein got nominated for doing the score. He did the music for the film. And despite the belief in some circles that Kazan did this as a way of justifying his testimony on the waterfront to this day, I think is still heralded as one of the best films ever made, and I agree, into, I agree completely. I can't recommend it enough. And so, like I said, Kazan had thrown himself into his work after the testimony. He became basically a workaholic. He had a very quick turnaround with his next film in 1955. This next film is East of Eden, and it's uh, the first film that Kazan did in color. And so the script was written by Paul Osborne based on a John Steinbeck novel uh, that came out in 1952. And it's basically a retelling of the biblical story of Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel were two brothers. They were the sons of Adam and Eve. Cain ultimately kills Abel and whatever. Those are the broad strokes. Uh, and this film is basically a retelling of that. And it's set in 1917 in Central California on the coast. And it follows a boy, a young man named Cal, Cal Trask, who is played by James Dean. And it basically follows him as he is desperately trying to, f to find love and validation and acknowledgement from his father. His father is a deeply religious man, Puritan to a fault. 
and his father seems to favor Cal's brother, Aaron. And Cal is a bit of a rebellious youth. He's a troubled youth, and he's trying to find himself. Grew up without a mother. His father had raised him and his brother under the belief that their mother had died. But Cal, secretly, has tracked her down in a nearby town where it turns out that his mother owns a brothel. The two of them have an encounter. He confronts his father with this in an effort to get the truth out of him, finally, for the two of them to actually have an honest discussion. What was she like? Was she bad? I guess she was. I never really knew what she was like. She wasn't like other people. It was something she seemed to lack. Kindness, maybe. Conscience. I never knew what she was after. How come she left you? I never knew that either. She was so full of hate. Hate for you? For everything. You won't tell Aaron. That she didn't die. No. Let's not do anything to hurt Aaron. And from there, now that he knows a little bit more about who he is and who he comes from, you see him trying very hard, like I said, to win his father's affection, to win his father's love. His father, played by Raymond Massey, is trying to put together a vegetable shipping operation where he can ship vegetables by train and use ice to keep them cold. But of course, the shipment doesn't make it through the journey. The ice melts... Of course, the veggies are going to go bad, and of course, the oper in any case, the operation is a total bust, and Raymond Massey, Cal's father, who plays Cal's father, ends up losing a lot of money in this failed venture. And so James Dean, in an effort to finally win his father's love and get some validation from him, he tries on his own to win the money back. He wants to make the money back for his father. And so he tracks down his mother, he asks her for a loan, he uses it to go into business with a family friend of his, and the two of them go into the bean business. This is 1917, and Cal successfully predicts that if America goes to war, that the price of beans will skyrocket. War, war is good for the economy, as they say. And so he goes into business with his family friend, they get a bean crop going, and they start making some cabbage on it. And so through this venture, uh, Cal is able to win back the money that his father lost in his own uh, vegetable shipping venture, and he wants to surprise his father with it. Meanwhile, Cal and his brother's girlfriend, Abra, played by Julie Harris, uh, the two of them are beginning to have some feelings for each other. And Aaron, Cal's brother, begins to pick up on this. And so when it comes time for Cal to surprise their father with the money that he made back for him, not only does Aaron, his brother, upstage him by surprising him with an announcement that he and Abra are going to be engaged, so he one-ups his brother. And to make matters worse, Cal's father, after being surprised with the money, he shuns it, he turns it down. He is too pure a man for his own good. Cal, I sign my name, and boys go out, and some die, and some live helpless without arms and legs. Not one will come back untorn. Do you think I could take a profit from that? Please I don't want it. the money, Cal. I couldn't take it. I, I thank you for the thought, but I'll keep it for you. I'll, I'll, I'll wrap it up, and we'll just keep it in here. I'll yeah, never take it. Son... I'd be happy if you'd give me something like, well, like your brother's given me. Something honest and human and good. Don't be angry, son. If you want to give me a present, give me a good life. That's something I could value. And so Cal's efforts to win his father's love blow up in his face. And he becomes vengeful. And what he does is he takes his brother Aaron to see their mother. And of course Aaron does not know that she is still alive, much less operating a brothel. And the impact of this revelation is devastating on both on Cal, Cal's brother Aaron and on their father. And I'm not going to say what it is, because I've already given too much away. 
and this is it's it's a wonderful wonderful film let's get into the cast a little bit james dean like i said he was the lead in this he was a young man and died very young in a car accident at the age of 24 unfortunately he only did three films in his life and he had been at the actor's studio and kazan cast him in this he plays cal and he is wonderful in this well, I came in the office one day and I was stuck. I had this play, East of Eden, uh, movie script, East of Eden. I didn't know what the hell to do. And there sat a fellow on a bench outside the Warner Brother office looking resentful, beaten, rather surly, suspicious, paranoid, <laughs> impossible. So I said to him, who are you? And he spoke to me a little bit. And he said, would you like to take a, a, a ride on my motorbike? And it was his way, you know, of getting acquainted with me. I think that's all he wanted. Well, I, go, I hate motorbikes. I don't like to ride on them. It was like taking my life in my hands to get on this back of this damn thing with James Dean. So I said, well, yes, of course. Why not? Who's afraid of motorbikes? I'm ready. Oh, well, he we went on. He drove me all around town on the motorbike. By the time we came back, he'd opened up, and he was talking to me. He said uh, this, that, and the other about his life. And by God, there was Cal. It was, uh, there was no doubt that his relationship to his father was the same relationship that the character in East of Eden had to his father. Julie Harris plays Abra, who is the girlfriend of Cal's brother Aaron, but who begins to develop feelings for him, and those feelings are mutual. Uh, Julie Harris was a very, very celebrated actress on Broadway, won five Tonys over the course of her career, and there was a bit of concern over her playing the part because by the time the film came out in 1955, she was almost 30. She's supposed to be playing a girl in her late teens, basically. So there was concern that she was too old to play the part but she is wonderful in this. It's a lovely performance, and she and James Dean actually have a wonderful scene together. There's one where they, the two of them actually begin to bond and they commiserate over uh, their difficult relationships with their fathers because James Dean's character, Cal, is closed off. He's an introvert. He's a troubled youth. He feels shunned by his father. He resents his brother for being the perceived favorite. He doesn't really open up to either of them, and it's with Julie Harris's character that, that he, he can actually do that, and the two of them bond because they both have difficult relationships with their fathers, it turns out, and it's a, it's a wonderful scene between the two of them. Uh, Richard Davalos plays the brother to James Dean character. He plays Cal's brother, Aaron. Uh, Raymond Massey, like I said before, he plays their father, Adam, who is a deeply religious and a good man, but a man who is almost, like I said, he's puritanical to a fault. And Raymond Massey was in a bunch of things. He was in Possessed with Joan Crawford, he was in Abe Lincoln in Illinois, which, for which he was nominated for an Oscar. Uh, he was in Arsenic and Old Lace, the fantastic uh, Frank Capra film, which I highly recommend if you haven't seen it. came out in 1944, and he is great in this as well. Jo Van Fleet plays the mother to James Dean and Richard Devalo's character. She plays the mother to the two boys. She is fantastic, and I really wish there was more of her in this. She's only in a few scenes, unfortunately. She plays their mother. James Dean tracks her down. They have a brief encounter at the beginning. He shows up, he shows up at her doorstep. And she turns him away. But the two of them meet again. And the way Jovan Fleet plays the scene with him, she talks about why she left his father. And of course, there's a transaction involved because James Dean needs the five grand to go into the bean business. And she's the only one he can ask for it. And of course, he wants he wants her to be in his life. Uh, but the way Jovan Fleet plays the scene, there is no... If she feels any guilt at all, she does not let it show. There is no contrition in her voice. There's nothing syrupy about this scene. She's kind of wary of him a little bit, uh, and I really love the way she plays it. And of course, there's something transactional about it, right? Which makes sense. One, because James Dean is coming to her for money, and two, she operates a brothel. So most of her interactions with men are pretty much nothing but transactional. I got the toughest house on the coast and the finest clientele. Yeah, half the stinking city hall go there. 
They sneak in at night. And I walk in this front door in the daytime, see? And I build it up from nothing. Now you want $5,000 of my money to go into business to pay your father back what he lost. You know, that's funny. Oh, well, uh, I don't think he'll know where I got it. No, but it's, it's funny just the same. Your father. He's the purest man there is, isn't he? Oh. He thought he had me all tied up with his purity. Now I give you $5,000 of the money that I made to save him his purity. <laughs> if you don't think that's funny, you better not go to college. And so Joe Van Fleet is wonderful in this indeed. Uh, Burl Lives is in this as well. Burl Lives was in The Big Country, Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. Won an Oscar for The Big Country, in fact. He plays uh, a sheriff in their town who is a friend of the family. And he knows the boys well. Uh, Albert Decker shows up in this. He is the friend of Cal's father that James Dean teams up with to go into the bean business. Albert Decker, very eccentric man, strange fucking bird, to be honest. Uh, we mentioned him <laughs> in part one because he was in uh, Gentleman's Agreement. And Timothy Carey, one of my favorite character actors, shows up in a small part in this as well. He plays, uh, he basically plays a bouncer. He's muscle at uh, Joe Van Fleet's brothel. Uh, unfortunately, his voice is dubbed, which is kind of annoying, but he is, he's good in everything. Had a reputation for chewing, for stealing scenes. We mentioned him also in our John Cassavetes episode. I worked with him a couple of times. A wonderful actor, and he's, he worked with Kazan, of course, Cassavetes, Stanley Kubrick. Great character actor, and he's going to be coming up every so often as we, as we move forward. So that is the cast of East of Eden, and really what it's about, yeah, it's obviously it's a retelling of the Cain and Abel story, like I said, but really it's just... It's just a story about a boy who wants to know himself and he wants to be loved by his dad, really. That's really what it comes down to. Where's Aaron? He's with her. With his mother. She's over there in Monterey, if you want to know. She owns one of them houses. I took Aaron there tonight because I was jealous. I've been jealous all my life. Jealous, I couldn't even stand it. Tonight, I even tried to buy your love. But now I don't want it anymore. I can't use it anymore. Carl, don't talk to your father like that. I don't want any kind of love anymore. And Kazan cast James Dean. James Dean had been... He had worked at the actor's studio. And... Kazan and Dean had met, and they had spent some time together before Kazan cast him. And Kazan has talked about this before, where, as opposed to just having actors read for scenes and doing straight auditions, he also enjoys spending time with them to get a better sense of what they're about, what plagues them, what makes them tick. It would give them a better sense of what they could bring to the part and whether they were right for it or not. I take in. walks with him. I go to dinner with him. I'm not looking for line readings. I'm looking for someone who can experience the experiences of the role, right? So that what I do is I have to get to know what their relations are, what her husband is like, what her home is like. Does she have children? Does she, is, she, is she febrile? Hun, uh, what, how, what, how does she like to dress? How does she fight? How does she do other things that I won't mention? And so forth. You get to know the actor completely or the actress completely by your social intercourse with them. And gradually you say, she's got the part in her. Inside that person, there is the part somewhere. I think of an actor as a uh, person with various personalities. As a matter of fact, Somerset Maugham says it in his book, The Summing Up. He says, all artists are more than one person. And you have to make sure that inside the artist, the actor that you choose, that one person that you need exists. 
And so Kazan and Dean spent a bit of time together and he ultimately cast him in this. And the two of them could relate to the story. Kazan claimed to have a difficult relationship with his father. His father, like we said in part one, was a rug merchant and he had wanted Kazan to go into the family business, as was Greek tradition back then, the oldest son carries on the uh, the family racket. And Kazan said that uh, that Dean had, that James Dean himself uh, could relate to Cal's struggle in the film. And interesting the way a couple of scenes were shot. In the scenes where Cal and his father Adam, so James Dean and Raymond Massey, whenever they have a confrontation of sorts, and this happens early in the film and it happens later, when the two of them have a confrontation of sorts or when there's a, when in those rare couple moments where they're airing it all out and being totally honest with each other, the camera is at an angle. It's at a slant. And it cuts back and forth. It alternates between Raymond Massey and James Dean. And the camera's at an angle the whole time. And it kind of adds to, this, to the, the discomfort these two people feel when being honest with each other, obviously, because their, their relationship is strained. There's, there's a big distance between the two of them. Uh, and it's, it's, it's a great film. Like I said, got nominated for a few Oscars. Kazan got nominated for Best Director yet again. James Dean got nominated for Best Actor, although it was a posthumous nomination. Like I said, he died very young at the age of 24. Six months after the film came out, James Dean died in a car accident. He had only been in three films in his life, East of Eden, Giant, and Rebel Without a Cause, which is probably his best-known role, directed by Nicholas Ray. And so he was nominated for an Oscar for this, and rightfully so, but he didn't live to see it. And also Paul Osborne got nominated for his screenplay, and Jill Van Fleet won Best Supporting Actress for her role. She isn't in it for long. I really wish there was more of her in this, but she is fantastic. And so the next year, again, another quick turnaround for Kazan, 1956, he puts out a movie called Baby Doll. Now, this is based on a Tennessee Williams play, and he wrote the script as well, so the two of them reunite. They had worked together uh, both on Broadway and in adapting A Streetcar Named Desire. And so it follows a broke, middle-aged cotton gin owner in rural Mississippi, played by Carl Malden, and he burns down the gin of a rival who's basically eaten up all the local business. So he burns down the gin of a competitor who's uh, taken away all his trade, and this rival gin owner, played by Eli Wallach, attempts to seduce Carl Malden's young 19-year-old wife, played by Carol Baker, in an effort to get an admission of guilt out of either her or her husband. Because, of course, Eli Wallach correctly suspects or correctly deduces that Carl Malden's character is the one who burnt down the gin, and so he goes over to his, to his, uh, his plantation and tries to get to the bottom of it. Like a silver line? Well, every cloud has got a silver lining. <laughs> oh, what's that, from the Bible? No, the Mother Goose book. That name sounds foreign. It is, Miss Mayor. I'm known as a wop that runs a syndicate plantation. Don't call yourself names. Let the other folks call you names. Well, you sure are a lucky fella, Silver. Gold or even nickel-plated. Oh, you sure are lucky that I could take a job on of your size right now. You see, you're my closest neighbor, and I believe in the good neighbor policy. You do me a good turn, and I do you a good turn, Mr. Vaccaro. Tit for tat and tat for tit is the policy we live on. Yes, sir. And so the film is set in rural Mississippi. The story runs about two days. The film was shot in rural Mississippi as well. And really what it is... And I think Kazan and Tennessee Williams have both talked about this themselves. The film really, you're basically just watching this this story play out between three people who are basically all pathetic in different ways. You have Carl Malden's character, he's middle-aged, he's broke, his ginning equipment is run down, can't even operate properly. He lives in this dilapidated house that is quite literally falling apart. And he's a middle-aged man, he's married to a 19-year-old girl, and it was supposed to be like a sort of arranged marriage of convenience of some kind. He had made her father all kinds of promises. He hasn't uh, followed through or made do on any of them because they're living in squalor. And he and his wife have an agreement that as soon as she turns 20, 
and her birthday is fast, fast approaching. The two of them have an agreement that they can finally consummate their marriage and have sex as soon as she turns 20. So if Carl Malden, not only does he have next to nothing going for him with his bum ass, he's basically just sitting and marinating until his wife can turn 20 so he can finally have sex with her. And he's a middle-aged man. He's got to be twice her age. He's balding. He basically looks like he could be her father. And the film properly establishes Baby Doll, Carol Baker's character, as a kid. And there's a shot early in the film where the, she and Carl Malden go into town, and she's sitting in the car eating an ice cream cone. And in the shot, you see Carol Baker sitting in, the, sitting in the front passenger seat. She's eating her ice cream, and standing right next to the car is a younger child, a little girl, who's doing the exact same thing with her ice cream cone. And the two of them are framed in the shot together. And I can only assume that it's meant to establish that Carol Baker is still very, mu very, very much a child. And it's sort of, I don't know, maybe it heightens the contrast or the, widens the gap between her and Carl Malden's characters just because they're so far apart in age. And so even though she is technically an adult, she's of legal age, I mean, she's a 19-year-old girl, and even though she is legally married to this guy, she is still very much a child. And she's pretty pathetic herself, to be honest. I mean, she sleeps in her old crib. She sucks her thumb while she sleeps. She's a fourth-grade education. She doesn't seem to be the brightest bulb. I mean, I mean, I know she's a young girl. She's 19 years old. And most 19-year-olds don't really know anything, but, <laughs> but it's, like, not exactly a, a prize catch. I mean, the only alluring thing about her, really, is her chastity, as far as Carl Malden and Eli Wallach are concerned. And speaking of Eli Wallach, he is a successful gin manager. He works for this big company. They've taken up all the local trade, so he's successful on that front. But in trying to, in trying to seduce Carol Baker's character to get a confession out of her, he ends up becoming attracted to her. And so he ends up having some kind of feelings or attraction towards this girl who is basically just a sort of, maybe not a vacuous human being, but, you know, she's no prize, that's for damn sure. So you're a wop? No, I'm a Sicilian, Mrs. Mean, of very ancient people. Shush. No, sis, Sicilian. I'm from Corpus Christi. Oh, how unusual. And so you basically watch these three fools. <laughs> over the course of this film and it's a black comedy and it's very good and the fourth member of the main cast is aunt rose comfort who's played by mildred dunnick yet again she works with kazan and she's she's the bumbling old aunt of carol baker's character she's probably senile and she's basically supposed to be the the caretaker or the cook in their dilapidated fucking ramshackle piece of shit house and the only pleasure she gets in life is running to the hospital to visit friends and to eat up all the chocolate that other people send them. So it's all four of these guys are pretty pathetic. And so they make up the main cast. Carl Malden, like I said, another one of the Kazan regulars. He plays the lead in this. Carol Baker, who even though she plays a 19-year-old in the film, she was actually 25 when the film came out in 1956. She had actually caught Kazan's attention uh, on Broadway. She had been doing some work on stage. And Tennessee Williams, though... He actually wanted Marilyn Monroe to play the part. Marilyn Monroe, in fact, had actually had an affair with Elia Kazan and was later married to Arthur Miller. And Kazan is actually the one who introduced Arthur Miller and Marilyn Monroe, the legend goes. And the two of them ended up getting married. In any case, Tennessee Williams wanted Marilyn Monroe to play Baby Doll, and Williams was ultimately convinced because they had Carol Baker run a scene for them uh, at the actor's studio. Eli Wallach, like I said, he was also a member of the actor's studio. He was 40 when the film came out or around there, 40 or 41, I believe. Uh, so he started late, and he was actually reluctant. He had some trepidation about actually working on screen. He had been in the actor's studio, so he had worked prime whatever work he had done was basically all on stage, and he started acting late as well. He started, I think, at the age of 30, because he had served in the war, in World War II. So by the time, in 1945, by the time he came back, 
I believe he was he was 30, so he was a late bloomer, but he is wonderful in this and had a great career. He is probably best known as Tuco in um, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, and he's fantastic in it. Was in Godfather 3 as well, another one of his better-known parts, even though the film is a piece of shit, and Mildred Dunnick, like I said before. And the film was very daring for its time, just because of its sensuality, especially because of this scene where Eli Wallach is trying to seduce Carol Baker's character, Baby Doll, and they're on this, and the two of them are sitting outside, he's cozy, he sits next to her, he's cozying up, and he's touching her, he's stroking her face with his finger, and he's trying to woo her, and this... Yeah, no. Thanks. There's a lot of fine cotton lint floating around in the air. I know there is, it bothers my sinus. Well, you're a very delicate woman, Mrs. Meehan. Delicate? Me? There isn't much of you, but what there is is choice. Delectable, I might say. Mm-hmm. You're fine fibered. Soft. Smooth. Mr. Vaccaro, our conversation certainly is taking a personal time. You make me think of cotton. No. No fabric or cloth. Not even satin or silk cloth. And no kind of fiber, not even cotton fiber, has the absolute delicacy of your skin. And for a film that came out in 1956, it was all very sort of risque and brazen. And because of this, at least in part, the film actually got a lot of backlash before it came out even. And part of this was because of the billboard for the film that was run in Manhattan. The promotional billboard for the film was basically the title of the film, and it had Carol Baker sleeping in her crib with her thumb in her mouth. And so a Catholic advocacy group called the National Legion of Decency, they got wind of this, and they were none too pleased with it. They condemned the film, and a Catholic uh, cardinal of New York, uh, Francis Spellman, was the Archbishop of New York, I believe, uh, he was also a vocal opponent of the film. Oh, it's, it's ridiculous. The poor, poor old Cardinal Spellman. He was over in Vietnam, uh, no, in Korea, I guess, at that time. He's over in Korea to celebrate Christmas with the troops. And he comes back and he gets up in St. Patrick's Cathedral and he says, Why well, was over with the troops there? And when I come back, and what do I find? Baby doll. But, uh, you know, this whole thing about sex censorship, there, there, if you look at Baby Doll today, there, is no, there are no sexy scenes in it. It's the most delicately done thing. It's all by suggestion and by uh, inference. It's all by inference. And, of course, they, they poo-pooed it because of the billboard and its, its depiction of sensuality and so on and so forth, which was all very new for that, that time in cinema, I suppose. So the film, got, was, the film was in hot water before it came out, even, I think. But even still, it had passed inspection with the Motion Picture Code, the censorship board. But even still, it was banned in, in a few countries, and a few publications, including Time Magazine, I believe, actually condemned the film. So it didn't have the warmest reception, uh, and it wasn't financially successful. That said, it did get nominated for, for four Oscars. Carol Baker and Mildred Dunnick uh, were both nominated for Oscars for Best Actress and Best Supporting Actress, respectively. Uh, Tennessee Williams got nominated for a script, and Boris Kaufman, who shot on the waterfront, he came back to shoot this film, and he uh, he was nominated for his cinematography. So the film wasn't a total dud after it came out, and it's a good film. It's a it's a strange it's a strange black comedy between three characters who aren't neither of them is particularly likable. They're all pathetic in different reasons, and you're just sort of watching this, waiting to see how this plays out in this dilapidated old house. 
Uh, the next one, though, is probably is one of my favorites from Kazan. So, again, another quick turnaround. 1957, A Face in the Crowd comes out. And this, uh, so Kazan and Bud Schulberg team up again for this. Bud Schulberg wrote the script for this. And the film stars Patricia Neal, the great Patricia Neal. She's a radio producer for a small radio station in rural Arkansas. And she discovers a drifter in a drunk tank. Deep down, when we get ready to tuck our heads under our wings and go to sleep, we ain't kidding ourselves. We're so low down lonely, the fellow we couldn't stand the sight of this morning. Tonight, when the guards get ready to douse the lights and plunge us into darkness, why, that same fellow seems like our nearest, dearest buddy. And after meeting him and giving him a shot on her radio station, this drifter, Larry Lonesome Rhodes, who's played by Andy Griffith, uh, becomes a local sensation. He gains, a, he gains a big following, and he basically parlays that success into a career on television. And his following and his popularity grow further on television, and he becomes a very powerful voice. He starts drinking his own Kool-Aid, unfortunately, becomes drunk off his own power, and he, becomes an, he begins to play an integral role in a United States senator's campaign for the presidency. And eventually his following grows and grows, and he turns into a bit of a monster, and it's a rare and inadvertent moment of honesty that ultimately leads to his downfall. You know what the public's like, a cage full of guinea pigs. Good night, you stupid idiot. <laughs> Good night, you miserable slob. <laughs> there are a lot of trained seals. I toss them a dead fish and they'll flap their flippers. It's an excellent film, and it's especially prophetic. Because keep in mind, 1957, television was still very much a brand new medium. And up, and up until then, as far as the media went, uh, all you had was radio and print. That was basically it. And so television in the 50s was still very much a new thing. And the film is especially impressive because of how prophetic it is. It basically shows what a powerful medium television is. Just how effective it is as a delivery system. And it also showed, or it predicted rather, how politics and television would be inextricably linked. And how TV can sort of be weaponized for nefarious purposes. It can be used for mass deception, mass manipulation. And not just that, it can give the perpetrators of said deception these sort of delusions of grandeur. <laughs> which is basically what happens to, to Larry Lonesome Rhodes. I'm afraid it's true. <laughs> What's true? Right here tonight, you might have that much power. In your ratings this morning? 53... Point seven. Just picked up another million. This whole country just like my flock of sheep. Sheep. Rednecks, crackers, hillbillies, house prowls, shut-ins, pea pickers. Everybody that's got to jump when somebody else blows the whistle. <laughs> they don't know it yet, but they're all gonna be fighters for Fuller. They're mine. I own them. They think like I do. <laughs> Only well, they're even more stupid than I am, so I gotta think for them. Marshal, you just wait and see. I'm gonna be the power behind the president, and you'll be the power behind me. And it's an it's an excellent film, very much ahead of its time. And the main cast, Andy Griffith plays Larry Lonesome Rose. This was his film debut, and it's just, he is incredible in this. And it's especially impressive because, one, he had no formal acting training. He was basically a comic. He had been working on Broadway at the time that he was cast. Kazan and Schulberg were having a bit of difficulty finding the right guy for the part. It was his work on Broadway that uh, that 
made Kazan and Schulberg think that he was right for the part, and they cast him in this. It was his first film, and he was excellent. Patricia Neal, like I said, she plays the, the radio producer who discovers him and basically is responsible for him becoming a star. Patricia Neal is wonderful in this. A great actress. She won an Oscar for a film called HUD in 1963 with Paul Newman and Melvin Douglas. She was in Breakfast at Tiffany's as well, The Day the Earth Stood Still. Fantastic actress. And she's got a lot to do here because she has very mixed feelings about Larry Lonesome Rhodes and about what he's become. She falls in love with him. She develops feelings for him. However, after watching him grow into this mega success and watching him turn into basically a monster, she begins to resent what he's become. And she may also feel a little guilt. She may feel partly responsible for the role she played in this. Of course, not that she intended to groom him into a monster. She could have never predicted that. But having discovered Lonesome Rhodes, she may feel a little guilty. And she's wrestling between her feelings for him, her love for him, and this resentment with what he, he's turned into. And so she's, she's got to show a lot of different colors in this. And he, and he misleads her many times. And as much as he claims to need her, and as much as he leads her to believe that he loves her, that those feelings are mutual... Uh, he really just treats her like a safety net. He doesn't respect her. And so Patricia Neal's character is put through a lot in this film, and she is wonderful. Uh, Anthony Franchose is in this as well. He was primarily a theater actor up until this point, and he is, his character is pretty, pretty funny. He's a, he's a shameless climber. He latches on to Andy Griffith's character's coattails and rides them to the top. Walter Matthau is in this as well. Walter Matthau, everybody loves him, was in Charlie Varick, A New Leaf, the great Elaine May film, which I adore. The Taking of Pelham 123, and he plays a TV writer who works on Lonesome Roads' show, and he resents Lonesome Roads. He can't stand him, but he loves Patricia Neal's character. Listen, I'm not through yet. You know what's going to happen to me? Suppose I tell you exactly what's going to happen to you. You're going to be back in television, only it won't be quite the same as it was before. There'll be a reasonable cooling-off period, and then somebody will say, why don't we try them again in an inexpensive format? People's memories aren't too long. And you know, in a way, he'll be right. Some of the people forget, and some of them won't. Oh, you'll have a show. Maybe not the best hour, or in the top 10, maybe not even in the top 35. But you'll have a show. It just won't be quite the same as it was before. And a couple of new fellas will come along, and pretty soon a lot of your fans will be flocking around them. And then one day somebody will ask, whatever happened to, uh, what's his name? You know, the one who was so big. The number one fella a couple of years ago. He was famous. How can we forget a name like that? Oh, by the way, have you seen uh, Barry Mills? I think he's the greatest thing since Will Rogers. And rounding out the main cast is Lee Remick. This was her film debut as well. She was 22 years old. She plays a young baton twirler that Andy Griffith's character spots at an event that he's hosting, or that he's judging, rather, and he makes her his wife. And it's not a very big part. She shows up a little later in the film, but Lee Remick is wonderful. She was in Days of Wine and Roses with Jack Lemmon, fantastic actress who died uh, died too young, unfortunately. She died in her, uh, of cancer in her mid-50s, but she is... Uh, she was wonderful. She's going to come up again in a little bit, and this was her film debut, like I said. So they're the main cast. And the character of Lonesome Rhodes, from what I've read, was actually based on three different people. So from what I understand, uh, Lonesome Rhodes was based on a combination uh, of Arthur Godfrey, who was a broadcaster, Billy Graham, who was an evangelist, and Huey Long, who was 
governor and senator of Louisiana. He was the senator in the 30s, and he was actually assassinated in 1935, I think it was, by the son-in-law of a political opponent. But uh, in any case, so Lonesome Roads was basically a composite of those three. And it's a wonderful film. It got a mixed reception when it came out, unfortunately. It wasn't, uh, wasn't a huge success, but it's much more highly regarded today. Some people even call it a masterpiece, and uh, I don't disagree, frankly. It's a wonderful film. And it's much more beloved today, I think, primarily just because the prophecies that you see depicted in the film actually came true. The film was way ahead of its time as far as just predicting the power of television. And so after A Face in the Crowd, Kazan took a bit of a break from filmmaking. He didn't come back till 1960, took a couple of years off. And in 1960, he released a film called Wild River. And this was written by Paul Osborne, who did the script for East of Eden. So he comes back to work with Kazan on this. And the script was based on two different novels, I believe. And it's set in the late 30s. And it stars Montgomery Clift as... Uh, he's a government man. He works for the Tennessee Valley Authority. And he's appointed to an office in a rural Tennessee. And he has to oversee the purchase of a small island, a piece of land, that is owned by an 80-year-old woman. Now, the reason the land needs to be purchased... The area had been ravaged by a flood, a devastating flood a few years prior. And so the Tennessee Valley Authority is formed, and they build a hydroelectric dam that is basically going to provide the area with electricity, for one thing. And two, the government now has to buy up all the land running along the banks or the shores of the Tennessee River, clear them, and relocate the residents, because with the dam being built, the water levels of the river are going to rise. And by the time Montgomery Cliff's character shows up to continue overseeing the operation, the only holdout, the only piece of land that is yet to be sold to the government, is Jo Van Fleet's land, her little island. And she's the sort of matriarch of this small little community. Mr. Ma owns this property and she ain't gonna sell it. Well, I... Certainly I can understand how... A senile old woman would have sentimental attachment to a place and not want to leave it. Perhaps she doesn't understand what it's all about. Ma understands what it's all about. Well, if she understands what it's all about, then what is she doing? These floods down Ma here. Ma knows so... all about these floods down well, here. Well, then I really don't understand. Now, 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 you just quiet down, mister, you hear? We ain't stupid. I didn't say you were. Been reading your mind. Mister, Ma ain't telling. Well, it's up to you to make her sell. What's the matter? Are, are you all afraid of her? Joe John? Don't say nothing again, Ma, mister. Oh, what am I saying against her? I am saying that if your mother is senile, it's up to you to make her understand she's got to leave this place. Well, Ma ain't gonna. She is gonna. You know that as well as I do. Joe John, mister, you'd better go now. Not until I talk to your mother. Come on, take me up there. What's so funny? What's he now? Crazy. He says Ma's crazy. I never saw so many men afraid of one woman in my whole... Whoa, boy, what are you doing? Whoa, wait, wait. Hey, hey, hey. Let go. Let go of me. And while he's in the town trying to find a way to get Joe Van Fleet to sell her island, he uh, falls in love with Joe Van Fleet's granddaughter, who is played by Lee Remick. And a romance develops between the two of them. She's a widow. She has two small kids. And she's being courted by a local man at the same time. And the film was shot on location in Tennessee. And it's a classic story of an old and traditional way of life that is going extinct. And it's basically about this woman's fight to maintain that traditional way of life on principle. And basically coming down to the fact that you can't really stop progress. And it's a good film. I don't think it's Kazan's best. I think it's solid. 
I don't know. It's interesting because Kazan had talked, and we mentioned this in part one. He had said that uh, that Daryl of Zanuck, producer that he had worked with several times before, he had a complaint about Zanuck that he wanted to turn every film into a love story, and that's basically what happens here in Wild River. <laughs> it's like I said, it's the conflict between tradition versus progress, and then meanwhile, the love story between Montgomery Clift and Lee Remick ends up becoming a central part of the story. So it's kind of funny he that that Kazan fell fell back into that, but in any case. Uh, and it's a very good cast, and it's a good movie. The Like I said, Montgomery Cliff stars in it. He, I believe, had been considered... He and Marlon Brando, I think, were initially considered to play the two brothers in East of Eden. But the two of them were far too old for the parts of the, by then, so they end up going with James Dean and Richard DeValos. Uh, Montgomery Cliff was 40 when this film came out. Died very young. He was in his mid-40s when he died in 1966. Uh, I think it was a sudden heart attack. And he had a rough life, man. He had been a beloved and very, very talented actor. Hugely successful. But he had been in a car accident that had left him with a lot of facial injuries, and he had to go. He had to have a bunch of plastic surgery done, and the accident left him with sort of limited use of, of, of one side of his face. And in the in recovering from the accident, he got addicted to pills. So he had substance abuse problems. He had other health problems as well. And in the early '60s, he had been deemed unreliable by a lot of studios. So he had a second half of his career was very, very troubled, very difficult for him. And you can kind of tell that his range has become limited because you don't see a lot of different looks from him. And he's a good actor. It's not a bad performance by any means. Lee Remick, like I said, she's the leading lady in this and another wonderful performance and a very pretty, pretty lady as well, dare I say. Joe Van Fleet comes up again in this. She was in East of Eden, like I said before. She was in her mid-40s when this film came out and she plays an 80-year-old uh, woman, so they had, to, they had to gussy her up a little bit. And she's great in this as well, as per usual. Albert Salmi, who is a character actor... He and Kazan presumably knew each other because he had been at the actor's studio. I don't know how involved Kazan was with the studio by the time Selmy got there because Kazan had basically left Lee Strasberg to be the director of the actor's studio in the early 50s so he could focus on making films. But I'm assuming he knew Selmy from the actor's studio. In any case, uh, Albert Selmy was a New Yorker. He was from Brooklyn. Uh, but you would never know it to see him in this. He's actually he's very good in this, and he plays... A uh, local business owner, he owns a gas station. And keep in mind, this is in the 30s in the South, in times of racial segregation. He's a racist gas station owner, and Montgomery Cliff's character runs afoul of him because the efforts by the Tennessee Valley Authority to clear the land and cut down all the trees and get the land cleared in preparation for the rising water levels, uh, they fall behind on that. And the only way to catch up and get the work done in time is to hire a bunch of uh, local black people from the area. And Montgomery Clift agrees to pay them the same day's pay as the white laborers and that doesn't sit well with a lot of local business owners albert salmi's character included and he's seen sort of terrorizing or uh coming into conflict with uh, montgomery cliff's character over the course of the film a uh, very foul and sort of nasty man and albert salmi is very good in this he was actually married to peggy ann garner who was in kazan's first film a tree goes grows in brooklyn one that i like very much uh the two of them were divorced salmi later remarried apparently he was he was an abusive spouse and uh, in 1990, he ended up shooting his wife and then himself, which is uh, pretty fucked up. But in any case, uh, that's all I got on Albert Salmi. J.C. Flippin, another great character actor, shows up in this as well. He is one of the fucking waste case sons of, of Joe Van Fleet's character. And J.C. Flippin was in a bunch of things. He was in The Killing, the Stanley Kubrick film. He was in Cat Baloo, a million and one other things. And if you're, if you're a fan of the oldies like I am, you will recognize him instantly. Uh, Barbara Loden shows up in this in a small part. She works in the office 
that Montgomery Cliff's character is uh, is appointed to. And Barbara Loden is important for a couple of reasons. For one thing, she was an actress and a director. She worked with Kazan a couple times. And we're going to talk a lot more about her in part three because she and Kazan eventually were married. She was a second wife. And the two of them had actually begun an affair while both of them were married. So Kazan was still married to Molly Day Thatcher and Barbara Loden herself was married as well. Uh, but we're going to talk about Kazan and his infidelities and his relationships in part three. Bruce Dern shows up in a small, small part. Bruce Dern, another great character actor, who was in The Driver, The King of Marvin Gardens, got nominated for an Oscar for Coming Home. This was his film debut. It's a small part. He doesn't have a whole lot to do, but a fantastic actor. Was married to Diane Ladd and is actually Laura Dern's father. Laura Dern, you may know, uh, won an Oscar recently for Marriage Story. She won Best Supporting Actress. And that's a, that is one talented family. And rounding out the cast is Robert Earl Jones, father of James Earl Jones. And he plays a field hand named Sam, who lives on the island with Joe Van Fleet, and, he is, and he's loyal to her. And that's really all I got about Wild River, to be honest. I mean, there's basically not much else to it. It's a classic story, and you know how the expression goes. There are only ten stories, as they say. As uh, Jean Renoir, your great director, said, everyone has his reasons. That's a very deep remark. And in that picture, I made a heroine out of someone that stopped the progress of civilization. She would not give up her home. She would not give up her valley. And instead of treating her as an obstacle or an old fool or anything like that, I treated her heroically. At the same time, she was wrong. She was absolutely wrong for the fate of most people. So I, I did that that way. And uh, uh, the, uh, the fellow from the government who comes down is finally is convinced that he's missed something, that uh, something is lacking in his own philosophy. And so I'm going to stop there as far as Kazan's films go, although not only was he prolific with his work on screen in the 1950s, he was a workhorse in the theater as well. He directed theater into the early 60s, but just just to run run through the work he did on stage and on Broadway during the 1950s after his testimony to the HUAC, when I say he threw himself into his work, I mean, he worked with Tennessee Williams again in 1955. He staged the production of Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, and the cast is incredible. Barbara Bel Geddes, who had worked with Kazan on Panic in the Streets, which we talked about in part one. Ben Gazzara, one of my favorites. We talked about him on our John Cassavetes episode. An excellent New York actor. May he rest in peace. Burr Lives, who was in East of Eden, and he shows up here in the stage production of Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, was also in the film adaptation. Uh, Mildred Dunnick shows up in this as well. She worked with Kazan yet again on this production. Pat Hingle and Madeline Sherwood. So that was Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. This was in the mid-50s. In 1957, Kazan works William Inge, adapting his play The Dark at the Top of the Stairs. And this starred Eileen Heckert, Pat Hingle yet again, and Teresa Wright. It was a very successful production that was staged in 1957 on Broadway. And this was right after Kazan did A Face in the Crowd. So he shoots A Face in the Crowd with Andy Griffith and Patricia Neal goes back to the stage to direct this William Inge play, and it was another hugely successful production. He also directed in 1958 a play by Archibald MacLeish called J.B., which is a retelling of the story of the biblical character Job. Pat Hingle comes back yet again and works with Kazan on stage to play J.B. Raymond Massey is in this as well. He worked with Kazan on East of Eden. Christopher Plummer, who passed away earlier this year, may rest in peace. And Andrea Vucina, who is a great, a fantastic Greek actor, one of my people. And uh, he was in a few uh, Mel Brooks films. Just a ridiculous assembly of talent getting all these actors together in a single production. And not just for JB, for, for so many of them. Cat on a Hot Tin Roof as well. And then, in 1959, Kazan ends the 1950s with Sweet Bird of Youth, which was yet another Tennessee Williams play. The two of them had a long friendship 
and a long working relationship like we mentioned in part one and I believe they had a difficult working relationship at times as well but in any case Sweet Bird of Youth starred Paul Newman Geraldine Page Sidney Blackmer who had done uh, Come Back Little Sheba I believe he had done that on Broadway with Shirley Booth and he was also in the film Rosemary's Baby Rip Torn is in this he has a, a tiny part in Baby Doll and he had a small part as well in A Face in the Crowd and he and Geraldine Page were actually married for, for a time and so he shows up in this production of Sweet Bird of Youth. And Madeline Sherwood is in this as well. She worked with Kazan and Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. She comes back for this stage production. And the play was adapted for the screen in 1962. Richard Brooks directed. And Paul Newman, Geraldine Page, Rip Torn, and Madeline Sherwood all starred in the film adaptation. And so Kazan, incredibly busy working in film and on stage. And that's about all I got for him. Uh, in part two. We had a lot to get to today, a lot of great films. I wanted to get to the controversy about the, his testimony to the HUAC because it's a huge stain on his legacy. It made him a very, very polarizing figure in show business, and rightfully so, I think, all things considered. Uh, but in any case, that's all we got. In part three, we're going to look at Kazan's later films. We have a handful left to cover. Some of them were actually his most personal films. And there's some good ones in there. And we're also going to talk about his infidelities, his relationships with his wives, some allegations that came out about him long after he had passed. So some more controversy there. And so we're going to cover all that in part three. That'll wrap it up for our series on Leah Kazan. And so until then, please listen, subscribe, find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Podbean, whatever your pleasure is. Give us a follow. Give us a listen. Follow us on the Instagram at Close Set Podcast. As I mentioned before, you know what to do so you can stay in the loop as to what's happening with the show. Uh, and please reach us by emails. Like I said, I'm sort of reconfiguring the format of the show. I have something in mind for what I want to do with it, where I want to take it. But if you have any suggestions, any ideas of your own, anything you would like to see covered on the show, please feel free. You can email us at closesetpod at gmail.com. That is closesetpod at gmail.com. And until we bring you part three in our trilogy on Ilya Kazan, take care of yourselves. Bye-bye. The paradox is that, uh, or the striking, oh, yeah. the striking thing is that uh, after you testified, your films became not only better films as films, but also more complex, more mature. And uh, how, how... Because I, I became uh, more mature, I realized the ambivalence of things, and there was that things uh, on both sides were valuable, and uh, that when you make a choice, something gets hurt, something goes... You lose one thing to get another. Uh, everything became more complex. My view of humanity, I think, became more complex. I, I also had uh, suffered a lot of pain uh, during the beginning of that. Uh, uh, certain people were alienated uh, from me that hurt me. But I think I became a man uh, uh, after that. And I, th I think the only good films I made were after the testimony. <laughs>